So under Secretary McCarthy, uh, uh, joined the administration after a distinguished career in industry and in uh, government. Uh, he's become famous or infamous for being a participant in Night Court, where the Army moved billions of dollars among accounts to align with the new national defense strategy, and I'm sure he'll be uh, talking about that. Uh, he served five years in the Army, including uh, a tour in Afghanistan with the 75th Ranger Regiment. Congressman Brown represents Maryland's fourth uh, district and serves on the Armed Services Committee a former lieutenant governor and a member of the uh, House of Delegates. He was involved with bringing health care to veterans and in coordinating the um, uh, um, um, transfer of 60,000 jobs to Maryland as part of the uh, BRAC round. And he retired as a colonel in the Army Reserve, and um, uh, including a tour in, in Iraq. Our format today is that our speakers will each speak for maybe uh, 10 minutes or so as the moderator, then I'll ask some questions to look at some uh, particular issues, then we'll open it up for Q&A, and then at the after, uh, afterwards we'll have a, a press gaggle here off to, to the side. Uh, and before continuing, I have to make a routine safety announcement in the unlikely event of an emergency. I will give you instructions about what to do. We'll either exit the building from the front or to the rear. And with that, let me turn the floor over to Secretary McCarthy. Mark, thank you. Uh, great to be at CSIS, even though yesterday afternoon I was um, on my way back from Hawaii, about 75 degrees, so welcome back to Washington with cold rain. Uh, but uh, Congressman, this is what it feels like sitting across from you all with the lights in our face, so I'm right at home sitting up front here. Uh, but great to see uh, Congressman Brown, who is truly a champion and no finer friend to the U.S. Army up on Capitol Hill, and someone we turn to repeatedly for help for authorities and the funding to support the, the Army at every turn. So good to see you, sir. And I know you uh, got through the traffic coming from your home district uh, here on recess, but thanks for coming, sir. Um, so we have our FY20 submittal. Uh, got up to the hill. We're about pushing two weeks into this process. But this has really been a journey for the Army for the last two years. Uh, we were very blessed with the FY18-19 budget deal, uh, which had strong bipartisan, excuse me, bipartisan support from the Hill, Congressman Brown in particular. Uh, so uh, we, what we've done with that increase in funding, uh, largely focused uh, first and foremost with the readiness. that uh, helped us restore readiness levels where we have almost half of our brigade combat teams at the highest level of readiness where we're at about uh, just under two, around two or three before that, two years ago. So funding is a big part of the support of getting uh, readiness levels to be restored. But coupled with that, uh, I believe, is General Milley and, uh, and then former commander of uh, Force Comm General Abrams, laser focus on all of the metrics that are necessary to get units trained and ready to go. If you were to go anywhere in the Army and, and talk to battalion commanders, they sound like the chief. They know exactly what they got to do with every hour of each day and that laser focus of getting units as prepared as they can be for deployed to combat operations, just minus the Boston accent. Uh, so it really is remarkable, uh, the, the leadership and focus from Army leadership to getting those readiness levels back to be about almost half of our brigade combat teams at this juncture. And why that's important is 60% of requirements worldwide for combatant commanders are met by U.S. Army. So demand remains very high in this environment 
So we have to make readiness our number one, and it will be to at least the you know, 20, 22, 23 time frame where we can get in the upwards of two-thirds of our brigade combat teams at the highest level of readiness. So with that, that strong support that we've received from Congress, we've increased home station training as well as maxing out combat training center rotations. So readiness gets roughly half to almost 60% of the funding in the Army budget. But one of the things in particular that we've tried to put a particular emphasis and focus on over the last two years has been modernization. If you look at the, uh, the, the focus within the national defense uh, strategy, there were four pillars that were in this, uh, this effort. Nuclear posture, great power competition, irregular warfare, and partnership capacity. Great power competition is really the uh, central challenge uh, that we face, in particular in the U.S. Army. Uh, we look at where our standing is in the world. We're still number one, but in many cases, the technological margin that we've enjoyed, the overmatch of our weapon systems, is being reduced, it's being challenged by near-peer competitors. The big five weapon systems in our formation, the uh, Chinook and Black Hawk helicopters, the Bradley Armor Fighting Vehicle, the M1 Abrams, the Patriot Air Missile Defense, they're all over 40 years old. And we've done a remarkable job with incremental upgrades to these weapon systems. But you're, you're getting towards the end, and you can't engineer another ounce. So we're can, we're st we're in this FY20 budget effort, what you're going to see is really this pivot or departure from the big five. These things take time, but in the moves we made in FY18 from a modernization standpoint, we primed the pump. We moved 80% of our S&T budgets against six modernization priorities. Long-range precision fires, next-generation combat vehicle, future vertical lift, network, integrated air missile defense, and soldier lethality. And this move of the funding helped really prime the pump in our modernization efforts. But as it takes time as you move across a FIDIP, a five-year horizon, future, uh, future years defense plan, what you'll see is the pipes really start to open and we start to finance our efforts with much greater scale because we'll be buying tranches of capability and ultimately full unit fielding uh, by the 22, 23, 24 timeframe. We had to be very open and we had a lot of support from Congress because you were moving billions of dollars in 18 and 19. And now in fiscal 20, which we unveiled just you know, almost two weeks ago, we found over $30 billion over this five year horizon where we realigned the funding against our priorities. Some of these were substantial cuts, north of 890 programs across the entire uh, defense program, Army defense program, but they're also terminations. <coughs> this may cause economic dislocation or challenges. We're trying to be very transparent with industry, but we know that it's necessary so we can finance the Army that we need. We're looking at challenges in the future with declining or even potentially declining, but flat budgets in the out years. $182.3 billion is a lot of money. We have to be as best stewards as we can with the funding that we've been afforded, and we're trying to do that. Uh, so uh, these choices that were made, which has been affectionately referred to as night court, because the Army staff has a sense of humor, but that pro process was where um, Secretary Esper, General Milley, General McConville and I kind of sat at the end of the table. It was almost like a, like, 
that show Shark Tank, and we made all the leaders in the Army come in and present every line item on the budget, all spring and summer. And what that was, to, the whole point of that was is having the leadership own the budget, so that everybody had alignment of what we were trying to achieve. And if it didn't fall within the six priorities, if we didn't fund the six priorities first, we knew we weren't really putting our money where our mouth was. We're trying to change the Army to transform it, to maintain that technological edge in the future. It's very difficult on the front end. We've been blessed with a lot of support, but it will take a lot of communication, a lot of effort going across the river, meeting with Congress, but also with the defense industry. And something that uh, we sh you know, we're very proud of, the Secretary Esper started this series. We meet with the CEO every Monday night. And we try to have very transparent discussions with industry to explain to them where we're trying to go. We published a modernization strategy that we sent to Congress. And it was, this started over a year and a half ago where we said, these are our six priorities and we probably need north of $20 billion across the five-year program to get it going. We've tried to telegraph this as much as possible so that we can get everybody to come with us, to be a part of the process. We've had a lot of advice along the way, and we probably will continue, and, but we'll adjust accordingly. Because in, in order for us to proceed and, and, and be able to have the capabilities necessary, we'll become very hard choices. We're excited about this opportunity. We look forward to expanding it in more detail. Um, but uh, great opportunity for us today to have a conversation with you all. Thanks, Mark. Well, thank you very much. Congressman. Well, for Mark, first of all, thanks to you and your, your colleagues at uh, CSIS for inviting me to participate on this panel uh, this morning uh, to talk about Army modernization. My, my first time here, uh, and uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to spend time with my good friend, uh, Ryan McCarthy. We had an opportunity to uh, work together uh, on a number of issues in, in different venues. We're up at Aberdeen Proving Ground looking at uh, upgrades uh, to uh, armament on the, on the striker. We were uh, together in Baltimore City uh, looking at how we can enhance recruitment uh, in, uh, in our cities and as we diversify and create a more inclusive uh, fighting force. So it's a real pleasure to be able to work with you and I, I truly appreciate uh, the leadership that you and Secretary Esper uh, bring your openness, your transparency, uh, and the level of collaboration uh, with Congress. So it's greatly appreciated both in the House uh, and uh, in the Senate. Uh, let, let me say that I'm pretty confident uh, that there will be bipartisan support uh, to uh, adequately fund uh, an Army modernization program uh, and the strategy that as the Undersecretary mentioned, uh, was in the making long before Congress uh, in the Defense Authorization Act of 2018 uh, requested or directed that a, the Army uh, submit a modernization uh, strategy. Uh, but I'm confident that we are going to fund it at appropriate uh, levels. Um, but let me just sort of kind of pull back a little bit. Um, the, the willingness to fund uh, Army modernization is a recognition and acknowledgement uh, that that is uh, a, a strategy that supports the national defense strategy, um, and particularly that line of effort uh, that focuses on building a more lethal force. Um, and as we are pivoting towards great power competition and Russia, which is probably the, the, the pacing uh, threat uh, for the Army, 
uh, has uh, undergone significant modernization. When you look at you know, their, their operations in Georgia in 2008, you compare that to their operations in the Ukraine in 2014, tremendous advancements in cyber, electronic warfare, precision fires, uh, ground combat vehicles. Uh, they've invested a great deal in modernization, uh, and it's a really a, a wake-up call uh, that uh, we need to do the same uh, so that near peers don't become peers uh, and that the overmatch that they have in some areas doesn't become an overmatch uh, across the board. So, um, you know, I'm confident we'll have bipartisan uh, uh, support for this modernization program as we build a more lethal force, uh, which is, you know, one of the lines of effort in the national uh, defense uh, strategy. But, you know, Congress is looking not only at the national defense strategy, uh, but at the national security strategy. And the national defense strategy supports that pillar, which is peace through strength. Uh, but as the undersecretary mentioned, there are a number of, of pillars, four pillars in the national security strategy, um, you know, homeland uh, defense, uh, but also, um, you know, American prosperity uh, and American values. Um, and the national security strategy speaks not only to um, a lethal, capable, modern, ready, um, you know, well-equipped, well-manned manned, uh, force, military force, but it speaks in specificity, if not necessarily in great detail, to the need to invest in infrastructure, uh, in vocational colleges and training, in apprenticeships, uh, investments to diversify our energy portfolio to achieve even greater energy security. And although not necessarily going into the causes of climate change, it makes, it, it, it references climate change. Uh, the Department of Defense has been probably, you know, on the leading edge at looking at climate change and what we need to do for infrastructure resiliency, uh, the things that we can do uh, for greater operational effectiveness and security by, by incorporating renewable um, uh, energy into uh, equipping both the Army, the Navy, the force. Uh, so there are, there are a variety uh, of, of action items that are outlined in the national uh, security strategy. Many of them are related directly to uh, defense spending. Uh, and a number of them uh, to non-defense spending. Um, there's, there's, there's ample discussion about, you know, projecting our diplomatic core forward, um, you know, investing in development activities uh, around the world. So what I'm saying or suggesting is that we need to fund in Congress a national security budget. Uh, that includes robust investments in defense spending to support not only Army modernization, but the other service components, combatant commands, um, operations around the world. But we also have to invest uh, in non-defense spending, many of which are related directly to national security, the State Department, Homeland Security, development aid around the world. Uh, and some of those uh, investments uh, are related to national security, but perhaps not uh, as directly, like investments in education uh, and investments uh, in, um, in addressing things like climate change uh, and energy uh, security. 
so uh, we asked uh, in the Defense Authorization Act of, of 2018 for the, the Army to develop a modernization strategy. Uh, you came back with, um, with what appears to be a really good strategy, outlining a structure, the Army Futures Command. In fact, I was supposed to be there this week, but I, my, my plans got derailed. I'm looking to go down and visit uh, in, uh, in August, perhaps. But you, you know, a structure to, divide, to provide a, uni a unity of, of command, a unity of effort, bringing together requirements writers and the war fighters, you know, the procurement side, acquisition, uh, and, uh, and training and doctrine so that we can deliver the capabilities to meet the requirements to address the threat. So, so I'm, I'm excited about the Army Futures Command. The only, the only downside uh, uh, to the Army Futures Command uh, is that it's not located in Maryland, uh, but in Texas, but, but, but that's okay, it's a, it's a good location. Uh, you know, you've laid out an approach, you know, where you know, we're gonna leverage science and technology, make the investments, uh, the collaborative effort between the department uh, and, and academia uh, and the industrial base, uh, the commitment that you're making to uh, evaluating the, the near term um, investments uh, in upgrading and recapitalizing those capabilities that help us meet <clears throat> this, you know, great uh, power uh, adversaries or competitors, <clears throat> and certainly appreciate the fact uh, through Night Court, uh, which is recognized as a, as a best practice, um, focusing on those uh, platforms, those systems that are uh, you know, either obsolete, unnecessary, or excessive, uh, and that the sustainment co costs just don't justify uh, continuing to keep them on the shelf and the willingness to take them off the shelf. Uh, so the approach is there. Um, uh, the, the, the six modernization uh, priorities, uh, very clearly articulated, focusing on capabilities and not necessarily platforms. So you've laid out a, a really solid strategy. And as we go forward, um, and, and, and Army is focusing on the planning and the execution, Congress needs to ensure that we've got uh, robust oversight and accountability so we're getting not only the greatest value uh, for the American taxpayer, uh, but the most uh, lethal force uh, on behalf of the, the American warfighter. So again, it's, it's great to be here. Looking forward to the, to the discussion for the next few minutes that we're together. Well, thank you very much. Um, let me start off with a couple of questions. And the first one is something that we discussed a bit back um, while we were uh, waiting to come forward. And this is that the, the, the tension between modernization and force structure. Sometimes the department talks about that in terms of capacity versus capability. Mm -hmm. When you read the national defense strategy, it, it clearly comes down on the side of capability. But all of the services feel the tension that day-to-day -day operations uh, uh, drive. That is that they are asked to go many places around the world to do a wide variety of activities in the real world day-to-day -day, from deployments to combat zones like Afghanistan and Iraq to exercises in the Pacific to crisis response. And, and I wanted to get a sense about how the Army is, is handling that tension, particularly in light of the difficulties it's had in recruiting, which has uh, um, lowered the targets that it, it has had for uh, end strength. 
Um, a great question. It's an internal debate that we're burning a lot of calories on. Uh, and it's very similar because we've been here before. When, uh, when we put the big five out uh, back in the, you know, we developed, started development in the 70s, field in the 80s, uh, the big five was really the big 64. And that when you had these five weapon systems, you had to create hats and hammocks and all the capability that enabled those weapon systems uh, in combat. And so you learn along the way, if you will, and that affects the force structure. Uh, so as we bring these new weapon systems into the fold, and you, you get more capable, more reach, more, more range and lethality, uh, we're going to learn. So we're trying to be flexible in the models. Uh, for example, multi-domain task forces that has really been a, a thing that General Milley has really pushed really hard and it's a capability that all the combatant commanders want. Because within this little task force you've got electronic warfare, long-range precision fires, uh, attack, lift capability, attack and lift capability work it will be a different structure than a brigade combat team. But how will you change that within the existing profile? Uh, so uh, we, we know we're, we're, we're making adjustments. We're looking at potential ways to get there. The multi-domain task forces will be the pathfinder to help, help us understand and make adjustments. Uh, and, th and this is where we'll get user feedback immediately from um, combatant commanders. I was with Admiral Davidson yesterday, or day before. And uh, he, that was just the point that he was making. You know, it's a very distributed combatant command in the Indo-Pacific uh, versus what we would face, say, in Europe. So uh, we're going to learn along the way. We're being very flexible, but I, I pay very close attention to multi-domain task forces. With respect to your, your question about recruiting, uh, what we missed last year. We missed by 6,500 people and, uh, and the active force. And, there's a variety of factors associated with that. You can, just, you can hang your hat on the fact that there's 3.9% unemployment, the economy is strong, there's jobs that are available, but it's, it's truly more than that. That uh, we, we took a very hard look at ourselves and how we're communicating to 17 to 24 year olds in the country. How we're, look, we needed to be much more comprehensive in where we went uh, to find young men and women to join the force. So we looked at ourselves and we said we were kind of getting fixed to certain areas of the country. And with that, we said, we need to get back to the cities. We're going to go back and look at what are the largest population centers in the country? How are we performing there in particular? So we, we locked in on 22 cities around the country. We hired an outside firm to help us with micro-targeting so that we could go look at a geographic zip code, understand the demographics, how to communicate with them, and to, if necessary, uh, find the specific things about us as an institution, how to articulate that to a 17 and 24 year old able-bodied American that could join the Army. Uh, so we did a couple pilots. We're doing them and uh, we did one in Chicago because it's, if you look at it from an ethnic standpoint, it's the pacing item for us of how we would do uh, across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, propensity to serve in the United States is about 11%. We're at 4% in Chicago. Uh, we, we brought the firm in and did about a 100 day study and they helped us improve leads by 10% within the first 100 days. So much more sophistication of how we're going to, to neighborhoods in the country and trying to look at our messaging of how we communicate to them. One thing in particular, we, uh, we, it's just the entrepreneurial nature of our non-commissioned officers. We had a couple of non-commissioned officers in the recruiting uh, command that developed their own videos 
Two of them did a rap video and they had five million people get a hit on it in less than a week. On his iPhone, he just did a video. So uh, giving the mission command out to the field and letting them have the latitude of how to communicate who we are and our, our values are touching millions of people. So you can never, it never ceases to amaze me, uh, the entrepreneurial nature, the strength and leadership of our non-commission officer corps, but we're, we're doing things very differently. And we're touching more folks and we're getting, uh, we're getting back to the, the fundamentals. So it's, it's exciting. And uh, the results are starting to trickle in. We're, we're ahead of where we've been in Portland, Los Angeles, New York City, and cities where we have not performed well in the last several years. So uh, a lot to be said about <laughs> our adjustments. Uh, we've reduced our end strength goal effective immediately in FY19 to, and throughout across the fit up to 2,000 year over year because we want to maintain quality and, uh, and still be able to grow because as I mentioned earlier about demand, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And Congressman, you've done some work on Army recruiting. I think you mentioned uh, Baltimore. And, uh, mm -hmm. what's, what advice would you give the Army? Right, so let me, let me say a few things in response to your question, uh, uh, the first question, and then the more specific, uh, refined question. First of all, let me say that I, uh, while the Army uh, has uh, not met its uh, recruitment goals and, I, and, and you've made adjustments, uh, I want to commend the Army uh, for not lowering its standards in order to meet the number. Um, you know, our, um, I think our superiority is in the, is in the quality soldier uh, that we, we recruit, we train, uh, and, and we, we retain, and that's our, our real competitive advantage uh, in, on, the, on the modern battlefield. So I commend the Army for doing that, recognizing that, um, you know, when you look at recruitment, enlistment, commissions in, in the Army, and perhaps the same can be said uh, in the other service components, um, you know, you see multi-generational um, enlistments, right? Just often, like, you see the same thing in firefighters, right? I'm a firefighter, my, my father was one, my grandmother was one, you know, et cetera. And, and in, the, in law enforcement and sort of military, paramilitary, these sort of, you know, rigorous public service sectors, particularly, you see generational uh, uh, commitments and, and, and participation, and that's no less true in the Army. Uh, but we can't rely on that uh, anymore. That, that pool is, is shrinking. So uh, we do need to make uh, a more uh, robust effort, which is what is happening, uh, looking at our, our cities, our urban populations, getting innovative and creative, going into high schools and uh, where appropriate. Um, and I recognize the limitations on JROTC. It's a civics uh, program. It's not a recruitment program. But finding opportunities uh, to expose young people uh, to what you know, life uh, in the military and that and that type of service might mean for them, and and I think polling shows today that the more appealing approach, and it's it's hard for me to accept this. Um, it's it's less about patriotism and the nobility of the service, which is why I entered, um, and it really is more about opportunities. You've got to you, you need to talk to young people about what this means in terms of a job and a career and, and professional reward and satisfaction, developing a skill and, and you know, whether it's a, a technical skill or leadership and what that means for you, whether you decide that you're only doing one enlistment, four years, whatever the minimum enlistment is these days, or whether you're gonna make a career. 
Um, I think polling shows that you really need to appeal to the, the opportunities, the economic opportunities uh, of service. And that's, and that's okay. Uh, that's a shift from where I was 30 years ago when I raised uh, my right hand. But um, so, so the Army is, is, is doing that. But as, as you know, you're, the, the, the first part of your question was how do you balance sort of you know, readiness and full spectrum operations with you know, preparing for a high-end conflict, which means more investments in modernization. You know, it's not just about money, and, and we talked about that a little bit in, 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 you know, in the first question, um, but it, it is manning and it is force structure. Um, and we've got a number of challenges. I, I like the fact that we're developing these uh, security force uh, assistance uh, uh, brigades so that we're not, we're not drawing on conventional forces or, or soft uh, to, to develop those, you know, the, the capacity with our allies and partners, but we're, we're developing these brigades. We're having difficulty filling those uh, brigades, I, I understand, so we've got to step up that effort. Uh, but we're having difficulties in, in filling uh, the additional cyber units uh, that we're fielding and electronic warfare units. Uh, we're having difficulty uh, with our um, um, uh, uh, THAAD, um, uh, ballistic defense missile units, Patriot units, where you need a higher caliber uh, soldier with higher aptitude uh, for learning. Uh, so we have, we have recruitments in terms of, of a numbers challenge, uh, but also in terms of uh, uh, quality. And that's because, as the Undersecretary mentioned, I mean, we're competing uh, in a strong economy uh, where, where the private sector uh, right now is just, you know, absorbing and, 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 and sucking up, if you will, uh, a lot of talent out there with unemployment at low levels uh, that it is. Uh, but... Um, we fund, we fund modernization, uh, we, we continue to make the investments in readiness, um, along with the effort to identify um, programs that may be obsolete and unnecessary. I think another um, um, request that, that Congress has been making, and I think we're gonna be making it with more force, uh, is you know, why are we in 80 countries in every region around the world? Um, you know, I know it was probably a, a misstatement uh, a year or two ago when, uh, unfortunately, soldiers were killed in Niger in Africa and, and sort of, you know, America, you know, asked the question like, wow, 7,000, 9,000 soldiers in Africa? And some members of Congress said, I didn't know we were there. Well, that's not particularly accurate. We know they're there and, and we certainly have constructive knowledge because, the, you know, the, the department reports to us, you know, every month where we are and what we're doing. Uh, but it did highlight the fact that we're all over the place. Uh, and do we really need to have um, a, such a strong military presence around the world, or should we be investing more in our diplomatic efforts? You've seen cuts to the State Department. Uh, should we have greater investments in development activity? We haven't had a single announcement from this administration. Uh, about a major either public health or economic development um, initiative in Africa. Um, we've got a strong relationships, military to military relationship in, in Africa, but on the diplomatic side, not so strong. On the development side, not so strong. So as we're wrestling with this readiness versus modernization, yeah, we've got to focus on, 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 on the funding side, the money. We've got to focus on manning. But we also have to look at the, the, the non-defense 
aspects of, of promoting peace around the world and addressing the, the threats or the potential threats that may be out there. Mark, could I just add one thing that I would be remiss not to mention about the recruiting aspect. Uh, Congressman Brown got us a venue with Mayor Pugh and her entire cabinet in the city of Baltimore. Commissioner of Police Department, Superintendent of Schools, Director of Parks and Recreation, and try to. And I brought in the uh, recruiting brigade commander, the battalion commander, the command sergeant major, and we talked about recruiting challenges and how do we connect with the community. And their Mayor Pugh's leadership and Congressman Brown's leadership said, what do you need from us? And they signed up to help us with various initiatives throughout the course of the, course of the fiscal year. We got the same level of support from uh, Mayor Turner and Congresswoman Jackson Lee down in Houston, Senator Durbin, Mayor Emanuel in Chicago. So the, it's a team sport for us with, with recruiting, and we're getting a lot of help from Congress and local leaders. So I forgot to mention and brag a little bit about the Congressman, but that, that really matters at the local level because the points of getting access to schools and other places just to afford us the opportunity for those recruiters to tell their stories. Uh, and that helps a lot, so I forgot to mention that. Sorry, thanks, Mark. And then we had a great visit out in Morgan State University, the ROTC program, they're doing great things out there. Let me ask one last question, and that gets at the cultural aspect of modernization and what's behind it. Uh, the thrust of the modernization effort is great power competition, as you noted a very different demand on the armed forces than what they've experienced for the last 25 years since the end of the Cold War. And many people have pointed out that we've developed some bad habits over the course of that 25 years when we had military dominance, when we had uh, secure rear areas, where we had sanctuary at sea and in the air. And we are now moving into a new environment where that's no longer true, where all of those domains are going to be contested. General Milley, of course, talks a lot about that, all the service Chiefs have talked a lot about this new environment that we're moving into. But that has to move down into the organization and, frankly, change a lot of bad habits that we have grown into uh, as a result of our experiences of the last 25 years. So I was wondering if, if both of you could talk a little about that cultural change and how long that's going to take and what you're doing to bring it about. I'll, I'll, I'll lead on this one. Um, you know, we've been there before. Um, I, I raised my right hand and received a commission in 1984. Uh, I graduated uh, from the first class in the um, uh, aviation branch in, in 1984. Uh, and uh, when I was in flight school, uh, the instructor pilots were Vietnam War uh, pilots. Uh, my classroom instructors uh, were uh, teaching Airland Battle, which had just been rolled out a, a year or two earlier. Uh, they had never gone to, to, to war with that doctrine, but, you know, uh, training, 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 and understanding the doctrine. Um, and, and, you, and, and we were making a shift from at least a decade of a counterinsurgency uh, in, uh, in South uh, East Asia. Um, and um, and we were now pivoting back to uh, the Cold War threat of the Soviet Union. And, you know, I can't count the number of hours studying, you know, our airland battle and, you know, on the principles of agility, initiative, depth and synchronization to, to defend Europe against the tank columns coming through uh, the fold the gap. Uh, 
and we developed um, capabilities around requirements. Uh, and that's what, you know, you saw the, 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 the Blackhawk, the Apache, Bradley fighting vehicle, the M1, which today is still the, you know, most effective tank on the battlefield. Um, and we trained for it uh, and we, we, we adapted the culture um, at that time. So I think the same thing uh, will happen now. We're going from a you know, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency fight uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're still in Syria um, and uh, national defense uh, uh, strategy says, you know, let's focus more now on great power competition, direct action uh, in a contested environment. Uh, and through the Army Futures Command and the modernization program, uh, the close relationship between the Futures Command and TRADOC, um, and, and going from full spectrum operations doctrine to multi-domain operations, we'll do the same thing. Uh, we've demonstrated the ability to, uh, to adapt to change, uh, the change in threat, the change in technology, the change in requirements and capabilities, and I'm confident that we'll be able to do that uh, again. A couple things from uh, from my vantage point, Mark. That we have, a, have to make a cultural shift internally, just how we do modernization in the Army. And it's, there's three fundamentals you've got to get right. You have to understand the threat. You have to have, apply that to an operating model that would be effective, and then pick the right uh, technologies that are mature enough to to fold into the weapon system. Where we've had challenges over the last 25 years, I would say uh, a lack of focus on the threat. Yeah, what is it that you're bringing this capability in the system for? And then applying it to an operating model. We are changing our operating model to multi-domain operations, which is basically air, land, sea battle, but you have to apply uh, cyber in the uh, cyberspace and the space dimensions. It takes, it took us about 14 years to really embed that the last time. We're gonna do it a lot faster. Uh, there's a conversation internal to the Army as well as externally to not only Congress, but combatant commanders uh, and elsewhere, of how, do we, how we're gonna do business differently. So the modernization strategy we delivered over a year ago, this time we'll have a lot about this operating model and how we intend to do business. And the push-pull between a weapon system and this operating model is gonna help us make those adjustments to force structure and others uh, as we progress. But in order to do that, it's bringing the requirements community and that acquisition community much closer together. We believe we're doing that with Army Futures Command, where uh, we've taken all the stakeholders in the process and brought them together under one roof. Uh, it's, uh, this, you know, it was initially a forced collaboration, but it's remarkable the change and how much better it's getting because it's making life easier for those folks. It's not an email to somebody, it's a conversation amongst teammates. They're task organized against a problem set, they're empowered, they're getting the resources. Uh, so we're improving much faster. We've reduced that span time very quickly. Where I think you'll see with General Mike Murray's team, a lot of the discussion has been material. He's gonna talk a lot about the operating concept and how that'll work to deal with potential threats in the future. Uh, but it's it just takes a lot of leadership and a lot of communication. So we're going to have those folks up here a lot over the course of this year, the rest of this year. Great. Well, thank you. Um, okay. Uh, the gentleman in the back there who seemed to have his hand up uh, pretty quickly. Hi there. Sam Baines from uh, With You With Me. Under Secretary McCarthy, 
You mentioned the uh, cyber. I've noticed that Army Cyber seems to have become almost at the vanguard of the DOD's efforts to move into cyber. And I was wondering where that fits into the forced modernization plan, as well as how the Army is going about planning to recruit for that department and identify who should be recruited into that effort. Uh, Army Cyber, uh, it, it really has. It's remarkable. When I left the department the last time in 2011, the Air Force was really, uh, it was remarkable how much focus, emphasis, and resources. And then I came back six years later, and the Army was either at par or exceeding them. Uh, the tremendous investment uh, by the Army, not only in just funding, but the, just the focus and management and putting the, the most talented people we get our hands on in the process. Um, but it, it, we developed that branch uh, and, and singular focus. So it was, it was a lot of moves made over the last six years. Uh, with that, it, it's really a national effort, more so than just above the Army and how the leadership of the department, uh, looking at a lot of it, are the authorities, the, the policies associated with that, and, and a lot of that came because of uh, the interference with elections and how uh, you know, other nations were uh, um, a, a constant uh, attacks that we endure every day from uh, cyber uh, bad actors, if you will. So that, that has you know, really forced the energy and attention against that. So we've, uh, we've worked on authorities, but uh, one of the places in particular is recruitment. These people are in high demand and they get paid really well in the private sector. So this is where the total force concept with the National Guard and the Reserves is critical. We found a lot of success there. Uh, and then going in to recruit in the cities. We're going to the finest universities in the country to try to get men and women to join the force. And in a lot of ways, it's being creative and using National Guard and Reserve units. If I may add to that, um, you know, Congress gave um, uh, the, all the components and Cyber Command, you know, greater flexibility through, um, I think we call it the Cyber Exempt Service yes, uh, category, greater flexibility so we can be more competitive. Uh, in recruiting in a, in a very high demand uh, skill set, um, computer science engineers, cyber warriors. So we've gained greater flexibility. We've asked uh, the department uh, to study and come back with recommendations about incorporating more cyber units in reserve units because, you know, you've got that, you know, that cyber type person who's working at one of these high tech companies. Uh, that may very well uh, want to be part of this noble effort in defending our nation uh, on, in either the National Guard or the Army Reserve. So how can we leverage you know, that expertise, that experience, and without being able to wholesale take them from the private sector, at least get them on a part-time basis. So, so we're looking, as the Secretary, Undersecretary mentioned, uh, at uh, um, greater use of you know, reserve and National Guard units and, and uh, how we, we can re recruit into those units uh, to support uh, the, the, the effort. Okay, uh, the gentleman in the back there on the end. Hi, good morning, Alex Sanchez. Quick um, question. Uh, in your opinion, what should the rifle squad of the future look like? Uh, the US Marines, for example, have been experimenting with having a rifle squad that has 12 members in 14 members. It's a growing um, body of literature about uh, adding a drone operator to an US infantry uh, army squad. So what do you think should, in your opinion, what will they, especially with your background, what do you think the future of the rifle squad is? Uh, especially given uh, emerging technologies. Thank you. Yeah, as a, as a former infantryman, I'll try not to get emotional or parochial here. The, uh, a lot of it will come down to the capabilities we bring to the unit. 
uh, we've made a vast investment with the integrated visual augmentation system, which is, uh, it's, it's, we started out where we were looking at how could we enhance our night vision goggles. And what we found in the process was is within the, uh, this, this system, and I always use my prop here, if we had a, a goggles that we had, you could put an interface in there, you could do day or night sight. And uh, so you could put thermals, so if you were, you were going to operate underground in a cave system or something like that. Uh, but also, what we're finding here is this, it brings this heads-up display will actually be able to give you the opportunity to train with it in a synthetic training environment. So the same system that you would go to war with, you can practice at home station and we could be in this room and it could feed in scenarios where you're going to do room clearing against potential threats and you'll see furniture and everything else as you were to be uh, coming in this room with it. And it would feed into the four-man stack that would clear a room together. And you could get thousands of repetitions. You'd also be able to capture performance data. So you could see the marksmanship. What was the blood pressure rate when they went through the door? What were they seeing when they went through the room? And then those after-action reviews would help you improve your performance. So that greater situational awareness could change the rationale of why would you need 10, would you need 8, would you need less. So we're going to learn as we go through this process because that unique capability may help us inform us to do it differently. Uh, where, where we've, when we've done it well historically with the Department of Defense, the technology helps us and the operating concept helps the technology of making the trade-offs or the choices of what ultimately will be the structure you need to go into a fight. Uh, we're pretty excited about that. I'm actually going down there next week uh, to see uh, um, them do some tests with this new system. We're in the prototype process, so we're very excited. Uh, but I think there will be adjustments to the force structure. I just don't know which direction it's going to go at this point. As a former aviator, all I can add to that is that uh, um, I'm excited about uh, the future of vertical lift and to make sure that we've got the, the, the lift capability to get that squad and all their equipment deep into the battle space in what will be a very contested environment uh, because right now we're operating um, uh, at, a, at a real disadvantage. So we can modernize our, our, uh, our squads and, and reform them as necessary, but if we can't get them where they need to be uh, with what they need, uh, then that squad's not going to be as effective as it ought to be. And as painful as it is for me to admit, we learned a lot from aviators <laughs> on how to, put that, how to put that system in place. And because uh, they do a great job with uh, our, in our aviation platforms where they have the, those heads-up displays for our pilots. And uh, so um, we're finally coming, to, coming of age like aviators in the infantry. <laughs> okay, lady up front here. strategy, there's the land, water, air, space. And there's also, you, you, um, you mentioned the um, near peers and the peers. So I'm thinking beyond modernization, there are three things I'm concerned about. One is the information systems and management. I mean, when um, Snowden went to Russia, now he's training generations of hackers. And hacking has been a ver very much a concern with the U.S., within the U.S., in Europe, and everywhere. The, also, the Clinton emails, there were probabilities of having been hacked. So at the back door, there's national security with the information systems. Secondly, there is the um, alliance management. I mean, even if the United States military is, is, uh, is strong enough, and we need the help of our uh, allies in, in, in the Middle East or somewhere, I mean, what is the U.S. Army or the military doing to enable, 
do a further enhance the capability of our, of our allies so they can probably do the war for us so that we don't have to be all over the world. And then lastly is the uh, um, space age technology. I mean, I think that's coming pretty soon because also here in the CSIS, they presented the nuclear weapons being developed by Russia, I mean, the aircrafts. I mean, sooner or later, I think they're planning like laser capabilities in the aircrafts and all that. And then I was looking into the military companies like the, uh, the Raytheon and all that, Northrop Grumman. So, um, so my question is, how do the U.S. Army, in terms of a national defense strategy, comprehensive strategy, and how would funding fit in in the strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats assessment of the US, of the U.S. Army and the U.S. military? Let Thank me, you. If I can, let me let me take up uh, try at that that second question about alliances and partners, uh, and I mean that that's an important line of effort in the national defense strategy, strengthening uh, our alliances and partnerships. And when you look at uh, Europe, um, there there are a number of aspects of that. Sure, that, that you know we need to encourage our our partners to achieve two percent uh, of their GDP on on, on defense spending. Um, but it's not just that level of spending, it's what they're spending it on. Uh, and, you know, and, and whether it's, you know, not every, not every uh, European nation um, has to be able to, you know, field the F-35. Uh, um, and, um, and we've got to be looking at interoperability, what's the, what's the right mix of capabilities that each nation can bring to the fight. Um, also investments in infrastructure. You know, where we, we sea lift and airlift uh, U.S. forces to Europe and they're landing at Bremen in, in, uh, in, 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 in Germany. How do you get them from there uh, by rail or road uh, to the, you know, e Eastern Europe? And so are, are they making the investments in infrastructure? Is the regulatory framework uh, in place to move uh, from, from one place, one country in Europe to another? Uh, so um, it, it's funding, it's interoperability, it's matching and mixing capabilities. Uh, there is structure in place to do that um, as part of NATO, uh, and we are actively engaged. The United States is actively in the, engaged in those discussions. There is an agreed-to plan uh, on how to do that. So I, I think that, that's a big part, and we, we don't berate our allies. Uh, we don't we don't undercut and undermine them and 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 publicly you know criticize them uh, because they're they're not at two percent but they are moving at two percent uh, because that undermines their ability to develop their domestic politics just like the, the the secretary has to come to Congress and 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 sell army modernization uh, to Congress. There's a domestic audience uh, that that we've got to convince. Uh, and, and the same is true for, for Germany uh, and France and Italy and all of our European allies. So, you know, you've got to have you, you're a little bit of diplomacy here as you're trying to help them help us uh, and all of us together defend Europe. And uh, if I could just add on your three points, uh, in the cyber domain, we are we're looking very hard at our data strategy versus defending data versus the network. Uh, I use the analogy of like professional football. They don't defend every inch of the field, they defend the football. Uh, so your, your challenge is it's very expensive to defend networks that are very distributed in, in the size and scale of an institution, it's the size of a country. So how do we do it differently, more effectively, encrypting the data and protecting it? So we're looking very hard at our 
uh, our data defense, uh, which will be a shift from the way we currently do business today. Uh, with respect to alliance and partners, we developed security force assistance brigades so that we can have a conventional advised and assist capability that we can afford to all the combatant commanders. We're in the process of building our third, we have one, excuse me, two committed. Uh, no, we have one brigade committed uh, per year uh, in Afghanistan right now, but it's on that cyclical rotation. We're building those as fast as we can. We, we uh, conduct division level exercise, we call our Defender Series, we do that in Europe. Right now, we have upwards of 30,000 personnel in Europe. Uh, you know, we have 30 plus thousand in the Middle East. We're looking at similar type of profile in Asia to support Indo-PACOM's uh, um, commanders and needs for capacity and capability. But the challenge is it's expensive. It costs billions of dollars all over the world. And there's just that, the touch of just how much influence do we need and how much can we afford. Uh, so we're, we're, we're trying to do the best we can, uh, but it's an expensive proposition. Uh, the third question with respect to space, looking at a lot of different options there, uh, investing in low Earth orbit satellite architecture, as well as uh, you know, the MEO and GEO. That's an expensive proposition, but it is a domain where um, the near peers are making vast investments. Uh, and we have to make some adjustments to uh, our architecture so that we can maintain the dominance that we've enjoyed for a very long time. Hey, Sandy. Okay. You're wrong. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll give you the last. Sandy Avgar, CSIS. Congressman Brown, you pioneered the use of public-private partnerships in Maryland so effectively, uh, what role do you see for them that is bringing business into the infrastructure and support operations of the department in this 10-year period we're now talking about? Yeah, and I've got to be real careful there only because, uh, uh, and Sandy and I worked together and, and uh, we, when uh, we were having the plus up in Maryland with, associated with base realignment and, and closure and we were looking at um, public-private partnerships to deliver um, various facilities at Fort Meade. Uh, one of the models that we looked at that was working effectively at that time was military housing. Unfortunately, today, uh, that's not really a good news story uh, and uh, where the private sector has not really delivered uh, their promises. Uh, they may have on cost, but certainly not on quality. And when quality sinks the way it does, it ends up costing you more in the long run. But you know, I believe that where we can find opportunities for the private sector to invest in public facilities, whether it's, you know, infrastructure like the Purple Line for those of you that live in the National Capital Region, you know, we're delivering that in Maryland, or whether it's, you know, redeveloping the Port of Baltimore, we've done that, or whether it's like enhanced use lease at our military, military facilities so that we can free up dollars to invest in readiness and modernization, then we ought to do that. Uh, but uh, we, we, we can't um, um, ever get too far from the lessons that we learn, and we're learning a lesson about military housing. Uh, we've learned other lessons about public-private partnerships uh, to, to incorporate those in any future uh, partnerships uh, uh, that, we, that we participate in. I wouldn't walk away from them now, but I'm a little bit more cautious. And one last question. The, the gentleman from whom we ripped the <laughs> microphone last time, and I think this will be our last question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's a very old former naval person uh, who was uh, 
spent a lot of time being embarrassed by the recent picadillos of the U.S. Navy. Come down to uh, a question of being so enamored with modern technology that we forgot the basics. And I wonder if within the Army Futures Command, you have an office that goes around to all of their meetings and saying, wow, that's really sexy stuff, but don't forget the fundamentals. I, I, well, I would, I, what I would say is the Army has done the fundamentals very well because we've uh, incrementally upgraded systems for over 40 years and they continue to increase uh, capability. But uh, we're, we're getting to the end where there's just not a lot of growth margin left on the systems. And in many cases, we're, we're really being, we're forced. We have to do it in an inflection point. Um, but there is, there is the danger for leap ahead. Uh, so it's a, almost a tenuous balance. So the, the leadership has been very active in requirements definition. And uh, we've, we've, we've reached out a lot to people externally to the Army for advice so we can try to see ourselves. Um, but we're going to have to grow through that. It's been a very long time since we brought in a new signature system into the formations. So we're going to have to own it, and it's going to be a challenge. Let me, let me just uh, um, point out two, two sort of findings and recommendations that the GAO recently made that are, you know, you know kind of cautionary. And I, I am pleased to say that they've been shared with the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, and, and that they've been, you know, uh, accepted and, and will be worked on. And, and one is that, you know, we have seen over the last several years a decline uh, in the development community, the requirements writing community in the Army, and, and, and Army Futures Command is going to have to address that. Fewer people uh, doing um, uh, this important uh, work. Uh, we're excited about emerging technologies. We want to, we want to, you know, kind of streamline and expedite the acquisition process to get these, you know, exciting systems and equipment uh, into the field, but. You know, we've, we've got to temper that excitement uh, by also recognizing and adopting a GAO, GAO recommendation that says, you know, don't go to programs of record uh, if, you're, if you're not prototyping these systems in operational environments. Uh, don't just rely on, you know, relevant, you know, simulations uh, because in the long run, it could cost you more, it could de delay delivery, or you don't match the technology to what the real requirement or capability is. So on the one hand, um, you know, there's, a, there's an excitement and a need for speed, uh, but on the other hand, you know, let's, not, um, uh, let, let's make sure that we're, we continue to be deliberate and methodical uh, so that we are delivering what the warfighter really needs. But I, I'm glad that, that, that Congress and, and the Army are willing to work together to ensure that. That's a great point, Congressman. We have a, a very bust, robust funding profile across the FIDA for prototyping. We intend to fly it before we buy it. So uh, that, that'll be, uh, it'll be hard to do that because prototyping always gets intense scrutiny, but we're getting a lot of support uh, to the Congressman's point uh, to, to put those proposals forward. Well, unfortunately, we've reached our time limit. Uh, please join me in thanking our speakers for taking the time out today. And we'll have our press availability.